How many of you this morning were talking about the highs and the lows? I'd love to just spend a whole week on just the highs and then just never get to the lows. <laughs> but we're going to try to do both this morning because reality is we get both. Uh, and oftentimes we live in the valley uh, and are not too often on the mountaintop. But how many of you have had one of those moments in your life, I mean, spiritually speaking, where it's kind of like this mountain moment? Anybody, anybody here, like you've had that moment where it was like, man, I feel like I could never get much closer to God than this moment right now. Have you ever had one of those experiences? When I was a high school pastor for years there, um, I would take students to camp. Anybody ever go to camp, summer camp, like, like youth camp, something like that, okay? Yeah. So youth camp, you know, there's the bonfire night, right? That last night of the camp, you know, like they preached at them all week, but then they like saved the salvation message for the very end. You're like, why not start that at the beginning and let's grow from there? But yet we somehow go to the last night of camp, let's really share the gospel. And then they got everybody around a campfire. And then everyone starts to share, and everyone starts to cry, and everyone's just singing with their hands raised. They're like repenting of all their sin. They're burning CDs. They're doing those things, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, all right, like I'm having this moment with God. Nothing could get any better than this. Maybe you've had that experience before. If you have, you've probably said things like this, could it get any better than this moment? Or maybe you, could, you would say something like this, like, I wish... We could stay in, the, have you ever thought about that? Like, I wish I could stay in this moment forever. Like, if I could just stay in this moment, if I could stay on this mountaintop, if I could stay at this moment in my life where it just seems like everything, all the stars have aligned, everything's great, and everything's wonderful, if I could just stay in this moment. I think we all can resonate with those kind of experiences. Maybe you haven't had that kind of experience necessarily with God, but maybe you've had that kind of experience in life where just like everything is going great. I mean, the, the job is secure, family's in order, and everything's going great. And you're like, or maybe that's on vacation, and you have that, like we had recently, like a man and I, we're on this vacation, having this great time. It was just the two of us, like one of the first times we've gotten away, just the two of us in a good while uh, since at least, basically the adoption. We'd gone a couple times, like for a couple nights, but first time for an extended time. And so, like, here we are literally on a mountaintop at one point, sweating to death. We had, we'd climbed this mountain up to 4,000 feet or not, we'd driven up to the top of that. And then we had to go down to about 2,000 feet and then hike back up uh, about, in about six miles. But I remember standing on this, like this precipice, or like on this literally point. Amanda's never been more scared in her life at this point. She had like, I have this picture of this spot and I was telling them yesterday, I was showing this picture, I'd put it as our desktop on our, one of our home computers. And I was like, you know what would make this picture even better is if me and you were standing on this spot. And she's like, well, that was never going to happen. <laughs> we were never going to that spot because there was like this little spot that was probably about as wide, maybe less than this podium, that was about, I don't know, about 10 yards to get to that big spot. And it was like you could see even further. And she's like, uh-uh, we're not, you're not. I was like, I'm ready. But she's like, you're not either. Uh, like, you're coming home with me. Uh, and, so, and so we stood there. And, but it's still at this point, I mean, it's, it's literally 1,500 feet on both sides straight down towards the ocean. And you're looking out, and you're in this moment, and we're eating our little sandwich. <laughs> and, you know, it, it might would have been better to have, like, a, a, you know, a, a chef there cooking your meal. Maybe then it would be the pinnacle. I don't know. But we had our sandwich, and we're sitting there. But it's just this moment of just, like, you're at the top of this mountain. You're looking out in this gorgeous creation. And you're like, could it? And you're and you kind of say, thinking to yourself these kind of phrases, could it get any better than this? If you've ever had one of those moments, you know how thrilling it is. 
But if you've probably lived a little bit of your life, you also, in that moment, you're going like, but reality's coming. I know this isn't where we're going to stay. I would love to stay here, but I know that we're not going to be able to do that. The reality is a lot of life is lived not on the mountaintop, but actually in the valleys. And this morning, what we see in Mark chapter 9 is we get a picture of both. We get a picture of the mountaintop, the pinnacle, uh, this picture of what was referred to as the transfiguration. It's this picture of seeing Jesus and more of his glory, less of his humanity is being evident in this moment, and they're seeing more of his deity in this moment. I want to read this passage of scripture. We're going to cover a lot this morning, a big chunk again like we did last week, um, because my goal is to hit the resurrection on Easter in the book of Mark, so I'm trying to stick to it. Um, So we got to cover a little bit extra this week. So Mark chapter 9, looking at verse 1 says this. This kind of ends this section, so this is going to help us also interpret the next section that we're about to read. That's why we didn't cover it last week. I wanted to leave it for this week, but it's like a bridge that helps us see both. Because if you remember, last week ended with Jesus talking about suffering, not the mountaintop. He's talking about the hardship. The, The disciples are ready to anoint Jesus. He's the Messiah. Let's get this thing going. Like, what are we waiting for, Jesus? Let's establish this kingdom. Let's go get the Messiah. Like, like, let's get it all out there. Let's, let's, they're ready to roll. And Jesus is like, nope, it's not my time yet. And this is the first time, and this is what we get to see for the rest of the book, is Jesus starts to talk often about his death. Everything is heading to the cross, heading to Jerusalem, to his death. And in that passage we looked at last week, that's exactly what we get to hear is Jesus describing that the Son of Man, in verse 31 of chapter 8, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then he talks about how the disciples are to follow him in that way. Deny yourselves, take up your cross daily and follow me. Your life is going to be marked by suffering too. And so that's how it ends, and we get to chapter 9, verse 1, and he says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this phrase has maybe riddled some over the years, but it's pretty clear by the way that each of the writers of the Gospels describes. They very much give a time stamp from this point, this statement, to the transfiguration. And if you'll notice, right in verse 2, it says, and after six days. Again, like I was saying at the beginning, not always is it chronological. Here we have the story happen where they make this statement that Jesus said had proclaimed this statement. And then the writers go on to say, several days later, this is what happened. And so here the picture is like, because they're in their minds, they're thinking when this happened, when Jesus would have said this, they're thinking about the future kingdom, the, the second coming of Christ, Christ coming to rule and reign, and they're ready for that kingdom to come. But Jesus has been saying from the beginning in the book of Mark, if we go back to the book of Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus comes in as the kingdom of God. He himself is bringing in the kingdom of God. Yes, there is going to be the culmination of that in the future, but he himself is coming. And where the king of kings is, that's where his kingdom is. And here he comes in his kingdom, but they haven't quite fully seen it yet. And so here it says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And notice he said some of you to his disciples, not all of them. And so now that helps us see 
the story of the transfiguration. So first this morning, I want us to look at the glory on the mountain. That's our first point this morning, just glory on the mountain. This is the story of the transfiguration. I want to read it to get together with me. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So just three of the disciples were with him. And, they led, and, and he led them, Jesus did, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured. Literally, like this is the word in the Greek that we get for metamorphosis, change. It's this picture of, of transfiguring, like his, fig, his appearance even changing right there in front of him, them. And his clothes, as Mark describes, became radiant, intensely white, as none, no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. Have you ever been that person? Like, there's, there's, different, there's different personalities, right? When you're like, you don't know what, like, you're in a moment, there's a little bit of stress, there's a little bit of uncomfortable, you're uneasy, you don't know what to do. Some people just go silent, right? There's like, I'm not saying a word, I don't want to embarrass myself. There's others of us that just kind of like babble, you're like, all right, yeah, okay, what, what should we do? I went, maybe this, is, this will be a good idea, let's try this. This is Peter. <laughs> Peter in this moment, and Mark's kind of pointing out that but Peter, Peter kind of spoke up a little too soon here. And so it tells us in there, so here's this appearance Peter's mind is being blown in front of him. He's like, Jesus is changing. He's brilliantly white. And all of a sudden, there's Elijah and Moses standing there with him. He doesn't know what to do. And so instead of just standing and waiting, he says something. And, and so sure enough, he's like, Rabbi. Interesting that he's even, just a side note here, even interesting that he says Rabbi, which is like teacher. What has he just proclaimed about Jesus? He's just proclaimed that he's the Christ. In one of the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, we get he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is this great pronouncement of faith. But here, he doesn't use that phrase. He uses rabbi, rabbi, teacher. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud comes and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son, do you remember when the last time we heard this in the book of Mark? Do you remember at his baptism, John the Baptist was there. He's baptized, and then all of a sudden, this voice comes from heaven and says, "This is my beloved son." Get this phrase, but in, if you look back at that phrase, the phrase is pointed like he's talking to him, and here. He's talking to the disciples, and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. <laughs> Peter's been talking, God says, listen. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So here's this picture, I mean, just take the scene in for a second. Um, Raphael, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the great, uh, magnificent, one of his, I think one of his very last paintings that uh, he had ever painted. It's in the Vatican, um, and it's the picture of the Transfiguration. It's this big picture, and it's a picture of, kind of this picture of the mountaintop, but then also the story we're going to look at here in just a second in the valley below of what's happening. It's a really, really beautiful uh, painting that kind of just gives us a picture of this story. But here, the dis three of the disciples are up on the mountain. 
And they're there in this moment. Peter is like, let's set up tents. <laughs> let's, let's stay a while. But here he's not even getting the picture fully still yet of who is, the, I mean, this has been our question throughout the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? That has been the question. Peter has rightly answered it and said he is the Christ. He's gotten it, but they don't fully, they're still a little bit blinded. They're not fully seeing this. This is what we looked at last week. They're, they're a little hazy on their understanding of who Jesus is. They understand him to be this great person, this teacher. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. They're even grasping this aspect of the Son of God, but they're not grasping. They're not fully grasping, and really not grasping it at all, that this Jesus needs to be crucified. They don't understand a Messiah who will die. It isn't gra- they're not resonating with them. And so in this moment, here that Jesus is giving them a picture. This is so much, and this is why it's helpful, guys, to read the whole of Scripture. This story very much mirrors the story in Exodus, in Exodus, I think, 33. And if in Exodus 33, Moses is on the mountaintop. Remember, God invites Moses up on the mountaintop to meet with him. And what happens? A cloud envelops the mountaintop, and God speaks through in the cloud to Moses. He's meeting with Moses. And what happens? Do you remember what happens to Moses when he would come down the mountain? Do you remember? Paul addresses it, talking about a veil needed. Remember what happened, right? He was literally his face was transforming. Moses's was. It was like a, like almost like the moon. Um, I mean, the last few nights. Have you guys noticed the moon lately? I mean, it's just brilliant and beautiful. And I, I when I was recently was studying this passage and thinking and reflecting on the, the story of Moses, couldn't help but think about seeing the moon. You're like, man, that thing is brilliantly shining the sun onto us at night. And here Moses is, is this picture of Moses has met with God and he comes down the mountain and he's glowing by reflecting what he has been in the presence of. But here's the difference, and this is the difference that even Peter doesn't quit, quite get yet in this passage, is Jesus doesn't just reflect God the Father. He doesn't reflect deity. He doesn't reflect it. Let me, sh- like, the shining that was happening in this mo- moment was coming from him. Does that make sense? Like, it is coming directly from him. He himself is God. And this is giving a picture of who is this Jesus. And Jesus is pointing to these three men. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a healer. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not, and here's what we learn in this passage, I'm not like, I'm like Moses, but I'm not Moses. I'm not on the same level as Moses. I'm not on the same level as Elijah. They were here. Peter says, let's set up tents and let's stay a while. Let's, let's like a tabernacle picture of God's presence with his people. Let's stay here. Let's, will you stay? All three of you can stay. This would be great. But who's left standing even after this moment? only Jesus. Who speaks? God speaks. God says, listen to Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. No, he says, listen to him, and he's talking to and about Jesus. You see, the object of our worship is always Jesus. It's not, we don't just worship the Bible. We don't just worship the law and the Old Testament. We don't just worship the words of this. No, this book that I have in my hands and that you probably have in front of you or a device there that has God's word in it. We don't, we don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the, the people of the Bible. We worship God of the Bible. 
It is God's word to us. He's the object of worship. And here God is giving a picture of his glory. The weightiness of God. Glory is this this word of weight. And listen, here's what we do. We give glory to all kinds of things. We, We give glory to things. We give weight to things, and we do it throughout our day. We do it through our life. We give weight to things by the things that we care about, the things that we love, the things we spend time on, the things that we devote ourselves to. And here in this moment, as he's transfigured in front of them, he's giving them this picture, and it is, it's a mountaintop experience. It's a worshipful moment. Peter is trying to get it right. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to respond. He wants to worship. He just doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to do or how he's supposed to accomplish it and what he's supposed to do. But in this moment, there's glory. But the reality is this, is in this life, Jesus said, you will have trouble. As much as we want to stay on this mountaintop and in this moment, you don't get to stay there. But what we're going to see, and we're going to see in a second, is these glory moments, these worshipful moments, can help propel you through the valley. To be honest, I, I see Sundays this way. Sunday is a moment for us to come together to really celebrate Christ and His resurrection, to sing about this great God who has given His life for us. When we sing these songs and we proclaim these truths about His blood being poured out, His His body being broken for us, and when we observe communion together, and when we think and ponder on these things, what are we doing? We're worshiping and we're propelling us. And so that when you get in the mire and the muck of your week, what can you do? You can, you can remind yourself of, of what was happening on Sunday. And then when you're spending time in God's Word, those are worshipful moments to propel you through the challenges. But here's this moment. They're on the mountain. and They're wanting to worship, but they're not sure what's even going on. And we see this, and I want to answer a few questions from this, because you're like, well, why are Moses and Elijah there? What is this why is Moses and Elijah even there? Like, what is this? Why, why do they show up? Why are they there? Well, one, a, a few different observations on this. One is Moses is kind of this picture of the law, right? He was the law kind of giver. So he's the picture of the law. Elijah was one of the great prophets. So thinking about the law and the prophets, and then Jesus, here comes Jesus as the one who is fulfilling all of the law and all of the prophets. He's the one who's coming. That's one, that is the, probably the, one of the main takeaways from the two of them being there. But I think there's even more there. Because Jesus, there is so much a reflection of Jesus' ministry and Moses' ministry. And how Jesus is a greater Moses. You see, like I was saying earlier, Moses reflected the glory of God when he has this moment on the mountaintop meeting with God. And God is giving them the Ten Commandments, if you remember. And he'd come, and he's glowing, and here Jesus is, and he's glowing in front of them. He's as bright as there, no one could ever even bleach something so intensely bright as it was that day. He's like, it wasn't, what they were trying to do is put it into words that he is so brilliant that there's nothing on earth that can really describe how bright and how white this was. They're trying their best as writers to explain this. And so, Naturally, the disciples have questions. Jesus, they're still confused, and so they have questions. Look at verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. So remember, he's been saying this over and over again. He's telling them, he would heal someone, say, like, don't go and say this, don't go and do this. Time wasn't fulfilled. 
Here he's telling these three, now three of the disciples, three of the twelve, he says he charges them to tell no one what he had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And I'm sure they're still so confused on this. We're going to see they're very much still confused. He's like, okay, so like, when are we not supposed to tell anymore? <laughs> like, we don't even understand this resurrection thing he keeps talking about. So they kept the matter to themselves, it tells us in verse 10, questioning what the rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, so rather than asking further on that, they ask him, they change the subject. And so they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now, who is this Elijah character and, and, and what does this mean that he needs to restore all things? First of all, let's look at the actual Elijah of the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah on the Old Testament is another person who, wanted to, who experienced some highs and lows. If you're a person who's going through depression, going through difficulty, Elijah is someone you can study and you can kind of resonate with. You're like, here he is. Remember, remember talking about mountaintop moments and then valleys. Exactly what Elijah had experienced. Elijah had this mountaintop moment, right? Do you remember? He has this duel on a mountain. Mount Carmel, here he is, has this duel with the, the prophets and the, and, the, and the ones who worshiped Baal, this false god. And so then you're going to go to a test. Let's, let's both build altars and let's ask our God to send down a rain of fire to consume this altar and this, and this offering. That's exactly what happens. Sure enough, that's what happens. Baal's prophets, they pray, they cut themselves, they cry out, they're, they're chanting all day. And Elijah's over there mocking them, really. And eventually nothing happens, and now it's Elijah's turn, and Elijah prays. He prays this prayer to God. It's a beautiful prayer. He prays, and he asks God to reveal himself in this moment. And sure enough, fire comes, consumes. I'm leaving a lot of details out, but it consumes the altar, every bit of it. I mean, you're a prophet, and you pray, and that happens. You're like, that's, that's kind of pinnacle. That's, that's mountaintop experience. But you know what happened? Immediately after that, if you look at it, I believe it's in... 2 Kings 19, um, could be 1 Kings, I might be mixing those two up, but either way, what happens is right after that is he goes into deep depression. He's worried about his life. Ahab, king Ahab, this evil king, Jezebel, his wife, are after him, and he thinks that all the prophets of God have been destroyed because they've been hunting them down and getting rid of them and killing them all, and he thinks he's the only one left, and he's ready. God, will you just take my life? He's in the valley. You know what God does? He reveals himself to him. He puts him in the cleft of the rock. And then a massive, like this massive picture of a storm comes. And it tells us in that passage, but he wasn't in the, God wasn't in the storm. And then another, th- another something happens. And it's like, nope, God's not in that either. And then all of a sudden, there's this still small voice. He was in this whisper. And God spoke to him. Kindly teaching him and he's showing him that you're, guess what? You're not the only one left. So he's in this moment, and what does he need? He needs worship. He needs, to, he needs a picture of who God is. He needs God to meet him right where he is. And here, this is their moment. They're having this moment, and Elijah is this great prophet who was, was trying, like, he's doing his best to, to, to lead the people to live for God and to repent of their sins, and there's hardly anyone left, and he was persecuted for his belief in God and his, for his prophecies. But then what we get is a picture of another Elijah. And this is who Jesus is referring to. If you read the, the um, parallel account in Matthew, he gives us exactly who this Elijah was, that it was John the Baptist. 
It was John the Baptist was a type Elijah picture. And what exactly have we learned in the book of Mark happened to John the Baptist? He was beheaded just a few chapters before us. He was persecuted, put in prison. Here he goes. He's proclaiming. He's the forerunner for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here he comes, and he's calling people to repent. And the people, some repented, but many did not. And here now Herod has put him in prison, and Herod, because of his wife, had had him beheaded. And here's exactly what he's saying in this moment. He said to them, Elijah does come first. That was John the Baptist to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. John the Baptist had been murdered, had killed for no wrong that he had done. They'd done exactly that. We're going to get further along in the book of Mark, and we get to Mark 12, we're going to get a, a picture of this where God, through a, a parable, where God is the parable of the tenants, and, and you have the, these different parables, and as, um, as, as God is sending, uh, or uh, the picture is God sending, and we'll look at it later, but God's sending these different ones, and it was the picture of the prophets, and they would kill the prophet, and they would kill, the, they killed all the prophets, and then here comes John the Baptist, and what do they do? They kill him too, and then here comes Jesus, and exactly what they're going to do to him too. They kill him, and that's the picture we're going to see in a parable in a few weeks. But here, we're already getting a picture, even from the mountaintop of the valley below. Jesus, what this is establishing, I really believe this, this is what this is establishing is this, because now what we're going to see is all throughout the rest of this book, suffering, suffering, I mean, abuses, mocking, crucifixion, death. All of that like, does not mitigate who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Like Jesus, just because he's this suffering servant that he's going to talk about, and he's this man of sorrows that we look at, this doesn't negate his deity, that he is glorious and God above all things. This is the picture he's giving them. Look, at, I am God, but God has a plan. I also have a plan, and my plan is through suffering. And what I want you to see this morning with our second point is this, as we transition to this other story, is the battle for your faith in the valley. You have these mountaintop experiences where you're like, can we just stay and sit a while? Can we enjoy this? Could this last forever? I don't want this feeling to go away. I don't want this moment to go away. But the reality is, is the valley below is where most of the life occurs. This is what we see in verse 14. This is what's been going on the whole time while they're up there. And what we see, notice the scenes that happen through this story. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, notice what he's telling um, Jesus. Here Jesus is. He's been on the mountaintop, transfigured. He's, there's Moses and Elijah with him. There's this great moment. The disciples are there. Let's just, let's just stay here a while. But they come down the mountain, and this is what greets him. There's a man. And someone in verse 17 says to him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. He's demonic-possessed, demon-possessed. 
And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Notice what he says here. Listen to what he says. So I asked who? I went to your disciples. Jesus is on the mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. So he goes to the other nine and he asked your disciples to cast it out and they weren't able. They weren't able to do it. Now, do you think that was on their, like, like, you know, okay, like, all right, so is it, do we have the right candles in place? Did we put our hands in the right spot? Did we say the right words? Did we do the right things? Did we say the right phrases? We maybe messed up the phrases. That's why. That's probably what they were trying. <clears throat> so Jesus, naturally, in verse 19, answers them. Notice he answers not just him, but them. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, we've seen the compassion of Jesus over and over in this book. He looks in a crowd and he sees compassion. He's looking at his disciples and he's going like, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Not meaning like, I, I, I'm annoyed. This isn't an annoyance. Like, okay, you guys just keep annoying. Like, no, He's, he's trained, like, think of it as like a teacher training, right? He's training his disciples. Have you ever, have you ever tra- you're trying to teach someone, you're, like, you've taught someone, like, I remember my dad and his great patience while teaching me how to drive, right? Like, you know, it's like, you're getting, like, super, super frustrated by, you're like, okay, stop means stop, like, and that doesn't mean, like, slam on the, on the brakes, it means gentle into the brakes, you know, and all those things, or you're teaching them something, or you're trying to work on a sport or something like that with your child or whatever, and you're teaching them, you're trying to show them, and they're just not getting it, right? Like, you're, you're hoping they're going to get it, you want them to get it, but they're not getting it, and he's training his disciples. Now, remember, there's been this phrase over and over again that he would tell people when he heals someone, don't tell anyone. Remember, we've been saying that, we even looked at it, he said it again here. Like, don't let them know about what I've done yet. Why? I believe it's very simple. The time hasn't come yet, obviously, in time. Like, there's going to be this time period, and then he knows exactly. He's God. He knows when he's supposed to die, and the time's not yet. But also, it's like needing more time. My disciples need more time. Like, God is ready whenever on his timetable. But these disciples aren't ready yet. They need more teaching. They need more training. They need more help. And he's, he's like, let's hold off on their time. Like, when they need more. And here he's like, I've been teaching them. I'm training them. I'm telling them, like, son of man must suffer and die. and is going to rise on the third day. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool. They don't get it. And here, in this moment, the disciples have seen Jesus. They've watched how he heals. It's not some... He doesn't need to do, like, set the mood, let's play soft music, let's dim the lights, and let's, let's chant something. No, it's, it's His power. It's the power is in Him. He brings the healing. The disciples, maybe they're thinking it's going to come, and this is actually what we learn from different theologians, or not different theologians, different um, historians from the day, um, is like they try to figure out ways, like there's certain people who had like this ability to heal people of these things. And so they, it quickly became like, all right, have I done the right rituals to make it happen, to get rid of this, this disease or to get this demon to get out of someone? And so it became all these things. But it's not about the things. It's about the power of God. And he's looking at him and he's saying their faith is the problem. Oh, faithless generation. 
How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then here's what he says. He says, bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, looking at this man, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And he says, and he continues to explain in verse 22, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Listen, this is exactly what we find out about Satan. He is a liar and a deceiver. And, he, and, the, and Jesus even said these words. I think it's in the book of John. Uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's exactly what you see when demonic possession comes. They are it's coming to steal your life. They're coming to destroy your life. They, they're getting, they're, they're literally, you're watching this person is de- dying. They're trying to mar the image of God on a person by demonic possession. And he's given us this picture. It's been just trying to destroy him. And then notice the phrase from the man here in the middle of verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice what he said. He said, if. One of the first times we see this, oftentimes we see the healing coming because of someone's great faith. Here, this man says, if. Like, I don't know if you, if you can, if you would be so compassionate to us, but, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds to him and said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, listen, this should be our prayer every day, probably. I believe, help my unbelief. Like, I believe and I want to believe you, God, that you can heal. I've watched my child suffer for so long, never knowing if they're going to live or die this day and hoping that they won't hurt themselves or harm themselves. And I just watch and I feel helpless and I can't help you. I want to help you, but I can't. And he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I love what Tim Keller said of this passage, he said, what's needed is helplessness, not holiness, to experience the relationship, the presence of God, to experience God. It's your helplessness, not your holiness, that gives you access to this God. It's not it's not clean yourself up and fix your life and get your right life right, life right. Then I'm going to give you the blessing. I will bless you immensely. I'm going to make a great life for you. I'm going to give you all that you ever wanted. I'm going to do all these things because, man, what a holy person you are. That is not how God works. That's how other religions work. That's how almost every other religion works. Every other religion. How can I get God to accept me? Well, let me, let me weigh my good and my bad. How much have I done good? How much have I done bad? Make sure I follow certain tenets and do certain things. This will get me access to God. Then I'll get God's blessing. But here, no, that's not what we see. This is not what we see ever. We see this as always someone who comes to God helpless, broken, and says, I can't do it on my own. I need you. And here's this father, and he's like, I want to believe, but I just, 
can't. Like, I, I desperately want to, but I know I can't. So here's what he does. He's helpless. He says, I want to believe. I can't believe fully. So will you help me believe more? And what a prayer. What a prayer this man makes. He's saying, listen, and this is what God is inviting us to do. Bring your doubts to me. Maybe you're doubting. Maybe you're questioning God's goodness in your life. Maybe you're questioning God's plan for your life. You're like, my life is not going the way I thought it would go. And you're going, God, where are you and why are you doing these things? Instead of just staying there, finish with this kind of prayer. Say, I don't understand, God. Help me understand. Help me believe. And not even understand. Help me to trust. Listen, you're experiencing the valley right now. And if you're not, you will. And when you're in the valley... What's going to help you is, yes, you can have these these moments in time like the transfiguration picture, this mountaintop experience, but eventually that fades on you. It becomes hazy. You're like, yeah, that was a long time ago. I mean, it was a long time ago when I gave my life to the Lord and everything, everything in my life was centered around Him. But I've been living a long time and there has been just one hardship after the other and one hardship after the other. And that moment seems so distant because the valley can get so dark. What helps you get through the valley is prayers like this. I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, I want to I tell you this. I want to help you th- with this. What gets you and helps you through the valleys? I want to say this is true in my life, but sometimes I don't live this myself either. I feel like I'm in a valley. I feel like I'm living this passage of Scripture, to be honest. And here, what we see is what gets you through the valley is worship. It is worship of God. It's the moments like we see at the transfiguration. It is worship of God. It is worship that is going to get you through the valleys, but it's also prayer. It's worship and prayerful dependence. It's this picture of that's what helps you through. And here he's saying, listen, help my unbelief. I want to believe, but I just can't quite muster it up, and I don't have it in me, but I know that you can give it to me. So help my unbelief. And verse 25 says, and when Jesus saw that the crowd, that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, man, listen to the authority of Jesus. You mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. He's using, in this story, he's using some resurrection language as we see here. So that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. This picture of resurrection, of life, and of new life, freedom from the oppression, freedom from the chains and the shackles of this demonic force over him. And he lifts him up and he rose him. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? I want you to read this line. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, does that mean like certain demons can be cast out? without prayer, and certain demons need prayer only? No, this is a lesson in the disciples. And why, why do you think, I, I, what I, here's what I did in my Bible, because I have two columns. So in my Bible, I have 
verse 18, so I asked your disciples to cast out and they were not able to. And then I drew a line right over to this word, prayer. Why were they not able to cast out this demon? Can you believe it? His own disciples. Now, I say I can believe it because I know me. But can you believe it? These disciples didn't think to try prayer when it came to the demonic possession. It tells us they tried other things besides going to God. They tried, get out of him. I mean, maybe. I, I, they might have tried to talk directly to, which is in some denominations, in some circles in Christianity, they want you to bind spirits. That it's like you can bind the spirit yourself. But we go to the God who can do that. We run to the God who can do that. And so we pray to the God who has the authority to say, you mute and deaf demon, get out of him. We don't do it, and the disciples had forgotten in this moment that the power belongs not in themselves, that God has given them some power that they can do this. No, the power is in God, and so you always go to God. So when you're in the valley, when you're in the trial, when you're in the deep, dark valley, and you're not sure out, what do you do? You pray. You go to God and you pray. Maybe it starts with that prayer. I believe, or maybe you're like, I don't even know if I believe, but God, would you give me some belief. Would you give me some faith? Would you help me? I need your help desperately. It's the picture that we see in Psalms. We've looked at it, Psalm 130, one of my favorite Psalms. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. It's crying in the depths, and you're in the depths, and you're looking up, and you're like, I can't get out. And he says, be merciful to me. By your mercy, Would you be merciful to me? You're crying not because of I've done, except you're not crying out, I'm trying, God, so will you help? No, you're begging for mercy because you're saying, God, only because of you can I get out of this. So listen, the valley is a battle for your faith. And what's going to help you get through these battles is worship, the right worship, getting worship right, worshiping the right person, not worshiping Elijah, not worshiping uh, Moses, worshiping the only one who deserves the worship, Jesus. Worship of Jesus and prayerfully dependent on this Jesus is what helps you endure the valley. Your life is going to be a roller coaster, right? That's the phrase that we've all heard over the years. It is, and it literally is. And the sad thing is you're like, I'm on the worst roller coaster ever. It seems like it just stays really bad slowly in the, in the underground, and it just stays there. It never seems to come out, up, out, and we never get to the top again to have some fun. It's always down here. Listen, when you're down there, cry out to God. Pray prayers like this. Pray prayers like Psalm 130. What I, want to, I, want to, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture as we close to this morning. Second Peter. So Peter, right, who has this transfiguration observance moment, gets some special privilege. He, Peter, so Peter, James, and John have this moment, and they get to see Jesus. They get to see more of his glory. They get to see a better picture of glory. They get to see more deity than they could ever, they had, they had seen to this point. In Second Peter, let me get there myself, in Second Peter, towards the... Um, uh, towards the end of your Bibles, um, you get to Hebrews, you keep going a little bit further. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Second, Second Peter chapter 1. So Peter, who was there that day, uh, is writing these two books, First and Second Peter. 
addressing um, those who have, are really struggling. They're, they're, if you read 1 Peter, you see the, the struggle, the persecution, and they're in the valley, and he's trying to encourage them. But listen to these words, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he is glorious, he's saying. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We got a glimpse of his glory. Verse 17, for when, when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. They're like, we were eyewitnesses to this moment. He is more glorious than you can ever imagine. Let me tr- trust me. Believe Jesus is beautiful. He's glorious. He shines like the sun and brighter. And it comes straight from him. It wasn't a spotlight on him. He was creating the spotlight. And he says, and we have the prophetic word in verse 19. More fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. Notice, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I think many of us are in the dark place often. You're in the valley. Seems like the sun's not shining too brightly down there. What's going to get you through? We talked about worship. We talked about prayer. But notice what this lamp shining in a dark place is. It's this confirmed word. And we have, verse 19, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars star rises in your hearts. You're in the valley. All you feel is darkness. All your experiences is darkness. Listen, trust Christ in the darkest place. Give it over to him and ask him and beg for him. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I don't know what you're doing. We started this morning's service this way. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. This hurts. It's painful. Everything about it doesn't make sense to me, but I trust what you have already done. Jesus has been pointing himself that I must suffer, but he's telling them also you're going to suffer too. You see, a follower of Christ is not just meant to be this smooth, easy life. You're not meant to just stay on the mountain. You're actually going to suffer. If you're really following Jesus, you're living for Him, you will experience hardship. Jesus said these words, in this world you will have trouble. How many of you know trouble? (laughs) I think we all do. Here's His call to us. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Because He has already won. We can face tomorrow. We can move forward and we can trust this one. But how do we do it? We do it by depending on him. And we pray and we pray and we pray. And when you're going through the valley, you pray some more. I think our problem isn't a things problem, people problem. It's a prayer and worship problem. We're not worshipers of God and we're not prayer dependent. So let's be both of those things. Let's be more prayerful. Let's be more dependent and let's trust him and watch as his lamp of his word shines in that dark place when you're in that valley and you're at low and then until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And sometimes, God, the, the, the path is so dark and so painful and so it's so hard to see. We're, we want to see light at the end of the tunnel, but oftentimes we're not even seeing any light. We just see darkness. We see hurt. Father, I thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. You comfort the weak. I thank you for the example of humility. God, we, we want to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, but we come helpless. We come not with holiness and righteousness to be accepted. We come helpless because of the one who has already come. So though this life may be difficult and hard, I pray that through your word, through our dependence on you, and through our desperate need for you through prayer, you will help us through these storms. Lead us, God, and help us. Help us to live lives worthy of what Christ has done for us. Thank you for the blood poured out on, for us and for our sins so that we could be made right with you. Help us to believe. Help us to trust. God, I just want to pray right now. I feel like you moved it on my heart, God, to pray specifically. For those in this room, God, who are in a really, really hard spot, or maybe someone who will watch this years later, it's going through a really, really dark valley. I pray that you will be near to them. May you shine your light on them. May you reveal to them who you are. And even in the midst of their doubts and their questions, God, may they pray a prayer like this father prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I believe that you have all authority under heaven and earth is on you and given to you. So there is nothing that you cannot do. And so, God, we ask that you would move on their behalf, that you would answer, that you would help. Would you restore what's broken in us? Father, we thank you. Thank you for Christ. And all of this is because of him. None of it is because of us. There's nothing that we could do to save ourselves. So we're thankful for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice, his suffering, so that we could be saved and made right and brought into your family. We love you, God, and we thank you um, for your word that speaks to us to help us this week to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.